welcome to the Green Urbanist Podcast. My name is Ross. This show is about how urbanists of all kinds can step up to the climate emergency. This episode was originally meant to cover sea level rise, flooding and hurricanes as a kind of general water-themed natural disaster episode, but I ended up finding so much interesting and startling information just about sea level rise that I had to make the whole episode about it. This kind of thing happens to me a lot. We're going to start by looking at the concept of sea level rise just to contextualise it in our minds and try to understand it a bit more in detail because I think we've heard so much about it over the years that we're almost a bit numb to it. Then I'll go in-depth looking at the story of Jakarta, which is the capital of Indonesia and is the fastest sinking city in the world. So the predictions on sea level rise vary depending on how much carbon we emit and our developing understanding of the science. But before we start thinking about the future, it is worth pointing out that sea levels are already rising and scientists have measured the yearly changes in level in many places around the world. So this isn't a problem for some distant future. We are in the midst of it. And of course, this is of interest to us as urbanists because many cities around the world are located by the sea, like New York, Dublin, Barcelona, Manila, uh, and other cities are directly affected by sea level rise, even if they're not by the sea. So for instance, the Thames River is tidal, and so changes in sea level will affect London too. Some predictions say that the mean sea level, meaning the global average, will rise by two metres by the end of this century, the year 2100. How can we sort of imagine what this will be like? Well, imagine your favourite beach. Now, you probably know someone um, who is about six feet tall. Six feet is just less than two metres, about 1.8 metres. So imagine this six-foot person standing on the beach and the water now is above their head. What does that sort of landscape look like now? The whole beach will have disappeared. Uh, If you're in a city or a town, maybe the water is now reaching the buildings on the shore and flooding their ground floors, and it could be extending way into the city, filling streets with water. And that's not even a flood event, that's just a normal day of two metres higher sea level. Now, you've probably heard this figure of uh, the the mean sea level rise of two metres, and this is a global average. Um... Actually, and actually that results in a variation of local sea level in different places. So for instance, as the Greenland ice sheet melts, the relative sea level around Greenland is actually expected to decrease. This seems totally counterintuitive. Surely if so much water is flowing out of the land, then the local effect would be especially high. But actually, the weight of the ice sheet is so massive that it's currently acting to depress Greenland down. As the ice melts, the land is actually slowly rising up above the sea in a kind of rebound effect. Geographers call this post-glacial uplift or something similar like that. A similar phenomenon is occurring to Sweden and Finland, whose landmass is still rebounding since the last ice age. However, the vast majority of coastlines around the world are currently experiencing rising local sea levels and will continue to see this. The nations that are seeing the most significant local sea level rise are islands in the Pacific Ocean like Indonesia and the Philippines. If you want to see a good visual of this uh, differences in local sea level rise, there's a great interactive map on the United States National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration website, which I will share in the podcast description and probably on social media. 
if you want to see uh, in detail what the current trends are around the world, how much uh, places are experiencing a rise in sea level or a decrease in their local relative sea level uh, every year. These measurements that are being taken all over the world. So there are many reasons for this uneven distribution in rising sea levels. As I said, in some places the land is rising and in others it's actually sinking or subsiding. I'll talk about that a bit later. Another factor to consider is where is the ice melting? The NASA climate website has a great article on sea level rise. Again, it'll be in the show notes. Um, I'm taking a quote from this because they explain this phenomenon uh, in an amazing way. Here's the quote from the article. As land ice in Greenland, Antarctica and elsewhere melts, it changes Earth's gravity field and slightly shifts the direction of Earth's rotation. This causes uneven changes in sea level across the globe. Each melting ice mass around the world creates its own unique pattern of sea level change in the global ocean. For example, when ice melts in Antarctica, the amount of sea level rise it generates in California and Florida is up to 52% greater in those locations than if the global ocean just filled up uniformly like water in a bathtub. End of quote. There, are also, there is also the effect of the global oceanic circulation system. The pattern of movement of water around the oceans. You may have heard that the reason Northern Europe doesn't get as cold in the winter as Canada, despite being on a similar latitude, is because of the effect of the Gulf Stream, which carries warm water from the Gulf of Mexico northwards to Europe. Well, this is just one of many streams, drifts and currents that keep oceans in constant motion in a predictable pattern. The main reasons for this sort of uh, flow of the world's oceans is to do with temperature and to do with uh, the saltiness of the water. You, you probably know that hot air rises, so a similar thing happens with cold water and warm water. It starts to displace itself, and the same thing happens with uh, salty water and fresh water. It, it creates this kind of turbulence and it keeps this movement going in a fairly predictable fashion. However, the introduction of so much new cold freshwater from the melting of ice due to greenhouse gas emissions is changing these currents, which could have ramifications on an epic scale. In recent years, there has been a growing body of evidence from academic studies that the North Atlantic current is slowing down. It's inconclusive as to whether this is a temporary fluctuation that will return to normal, or that it's a signal that the current will continue to slow down as a result of climate change and the introduction of this cold fresh water from glaciers and ice sheets. A 2016 article from Yale titled How Climate Change Could Jam the World's Ocean Circulation had this to say on the potential effects. If the North Atlantic current slows dramatically, then the entire northern hemisphere would cool. A complete collapse of the current could even reverse global warming for about 20 years. But the heat that ocean currents fail to transport northwards would make parts of the southern hemisphere even hotter. And a cooler north isn't necessarily good news. Should the North Atlantic current shut down, models show that changes in rainfall patterns would dry up Europe's rivers, and North America's entire eastern seaboard could see an additional 30 inches of sea level rise as the backed-up currents pile water up on the east coast shores. 
Now, we're still in the early days of this research, so nothing is conclusive, but it is just another example of how global climate is incredibly complex, and even after decades of study, there's still much uncertainty about how our Earth will change over the coming decades. With that being said, I'd like to bring the podcast episode back to the present and the immediate future and look at the story of how Jakarta in Indonesia is the fastest sinking city in the world. Let's begin with a bit of background. So Jakarta has a long history. There's been a settlement here dating back um, at least to the 4th century. It was then settled by Dutch colonialists in the 16th century and used as a port by the Dutch and British empires. Amazingly, it remained controlled by the Dutch for centuries until after World War II, when Indonesia achieved independence. Since then, the country has discovered oil and invested heavily in infrastructure, causing Jakarta to boom. As the capital of Indonesia, Jakarta is home to 10 million inhabitants and its greater urban area has a population of 36 million. It is a megacity. Jakarta now faces a dual problem. Sea levels are rising as a result of climate change and the city is actually sinking. Now, I don't mean that in a metaphorical sense. I mean the actual ground the city is built on is subsiding. How could this happen? Well... Many parts of the city do not have water piped in like we would have um, in UK or, or the US, and Europe. We're just used to this infrastructure where we just get fresh water at our kitchen taps for drinking. We can have showers. There's rarely any uh, problems with supply. A lot, in a lot of parts of Jakarta, uh, this infrastructure just doesn't exist. So where do people get their water from? Well, you might think um, there's many rivers that run through Jakarta. Surely that would be a natural source of water. But actually, um, because there's also enough, uh, but also because there's very limited um, rubbish pickup and disposal facilities, the rivers are clogged full of um, discarded waste. And so they're heavily polluted and you basically can't use it for drinking or bathing. So where do you look next? Well, you have to look underground. Underneath the city are naturally occurring aquifers of water that can be pumped up to the surface. The way the government has dealt with the the lack of water supply in the city is to say, basically anyone who wants to pump for groundwater is allowed to. So all over the city, people extract whatever water they need from beneath the city itself. And because the city is so vast and so much of it is covered by impermeable surfaces like concrete, Groundwater reserves don't get replenished quickly enough. This means that over time, as water is extracted, it makes the soil unstable. It essentially leaves a kind of vacuum behind. And the soil actually compresses downward, causing the city to sink. Some parts of North Jakarta, by the coast, have sunk by 2.5 metres in the last 10 years and continue to subside by up to 25 centimetres a year. So Jakarta is decades ahead of the global average for sea level rise. It's already had, the city has had more and more instances of flooding due to seasonal cyclones and overflowing rivers, and the tide has been gradually working its way inland. The response to this has been slightly ad hoc, and it's been to just build seawalls on the coast to try and keep the water at bay. 
these walls do act uh do work well as flood defenses for a time but the the tide is rising so fast that many walls are obsolete and are now sitting below the water level it's clear that this strategy cannot work forever or in isolation in the last few years there's been many news articles with panicked headlines about jakarta a new york times article in 2017 was titled jakarta is sinking so fast it could end up underwater Wired magazine reported in 2019 with the title The Impossible Fight to Save Jakarta, the Sinking Megacity. These articles give the impression that the whole city is doomed. And even the government seems to be giving up. Last year, the president of Indonesia announced that the capital of the country will be relocated out of Jakarta. They've chosen a large plot of government-owned land in Borneo and will build a new capital city there in the vein of Brasilia or Washington, D.C., Now, it's unclear what they really mean by moving the capital. Of course, moving the seat of government to a new location means all the government staff and supporting workers and industries will move. But what happens to all the other residents? Are they left behind as the city sinks into the ocean? Well, before we get ahead of ourselves with these kind of alarmist newspaper article titles, at this point it's worth backing up a little bit and understanding the geography of Jakarta. When news articles write something like, Jakarta will be underwater in 20 years, it's a bit disingenuous. It gives the impression that the entirety of the city will disappear and the whole population will be displaced. This is not really correct. I said earlier that Jakarta is a city of 10 million people and that's usually what you'll see reported. That too is a kind of half-truth. The population of Jakarta within its small administrative boundary The kind of city centre is 10 million, but the wider metropolitan area of Jakarta covers over 6,000 square kilometres and is home to 36 million people. It's the second most populous urban area in the world after Tokyo. Just for reference, Greater London, a very large urban area, I'm sure you'll agree, is only about 1,500 square kilometres. Next, consider the topography of Jakarta. The historic centre and port of the city is on the northern shore and sits at sea level, soon or in fact below sea level. This area is of course the most at risk, and the area that is already experiencing the rise in sea level, causing streets and neighbourhoods to disappear. But the land rises up to the south, towards the volcanic formations at the centre of the island. Because of the sprawling nature of the Jakarta metropolitan area, many people and businesses are located well above sea level and should be relatively safe. There's a helpful visualisation on the website earth.org, which I'll link in the podcast description. It shows that by the year 2100, sea level rise and coastal flooding could displace 50% of the city's population. 5 million people. Now, it doesn't define how much of the metropolitan area's population could be affected, but looking at the graphic, it looks to be a similar percentage. Or at least a similar percentage of the urban area, about half. So potentially half the city may be underwater, including the port and parts of the central business hub. Many people who can afford to will move to other cities, including the new capital maybe. But those who remain will reshape the city. Those who live in makeshift and informal settlements will move further and further out of the centre, densifying the suburbs and causing the megacity to sprawl even further. 
what happens when the central focus of the city, the downtown, disappears or is regularly flooded? Maybe the central focus of the city will change too, moving inland to a higher elevation with the population. This is a kind of re-urbanisation in the time of climate change. But these models on sea level rise and the effect on Jakarta assume that the city does nothing to save itself. You may think that the Indonesian government is leaving Jakarta to its fate by moving and moving to a new capital city and that that's just the cheapest thing to do is just to let it flood. But actually the economics of this don't stack up. It's been calculated that abandoning North Jakarta, the community along the city's northern coast, would incur an economic cost of 200 billion US dollars. Even the most over-the-top, doomed-to-fail megalomaniac plans for Jakarta's flood defence, which included excessive land reclamation and the creation of a giant bird-shaped property development in Jakarta Bay, would have cost only $40 billion in comparison. So even from a cynical economist's point of view, something has to be done. This is a complex, multifaceted problem that requires a complex response. Over the past three years, the city government has been restricting groundwater extraction to try to slow the sinking, and groundwater reserves do seem to be replenishing slowly. However, the city's chief resilience officer estimates that Jakarta needs to stop pumping up groundwater completely within five years. The city has many rivers that should offer a source of an alternative source of water, but as I said, these are heavily polluted with industrial and domestic waste, just another of the city's many problems. This means that other sources of water, like rainwater harvesting, need to be explored to provide people with an alternative to groundwater extraction, and these need to be provided on a huge scale very, very quickly. Then what about the sea level rise? Well, we're back to building walls. However, instead of building seawalls on land bit by bit, the Office of Public Works last year signed off on a 40 kilometer long offshore seawall that will essentially close off Jakarta Bay. I haven't seen any plans of this. I don't know how exactly uh, it will function, but an article in Wired magazine described it like this. The dike will act as a huge breakwater to reduce the height of waves entering the bay and to take the momentum out of storm surges so that they do not wash over the inner seawalls. Crucially, it relieves room for failure. The base level plan assumes that land subsidence will be addressed, but it includes contingencies in case it continues, or if sea level rise occurs faster than anticipated. The same article includes an interview with a Dutch engineering consultant who has been working with the Jakarta government for years on the issue of flooding. There's a great quote from him at the end of the article. Speaking about trying to solve these big problems, he says, I think you can compare it to the problem of climate change, where governments do see the problem, but they postpone very expensive and difficult measures towards the longer term and only focus on the quick wins. That is the nature of this kind of problem and the way politicians solve it. End of quote. That is one of the lessons we are learning all over the world. We have known about climate change and the problems it would cause us for decades, but we've been putting off the tough decisions and big investments until now we're right on the edge of crisis. And sometimes even then we don't do what is necessary. Finally, I'll leave you with yet another quote, uh, this time from a report published by the World Bank titled Jakarta Urban Challenges in a Changing Climate. They say... 
A few basic principles can guide the way forward for addressing climate change, disaster risk and urban poverty in Jakarta. First, climate change adaptation should not be so much an additional challenge to be layered onto existing policies and planning priorities, but rather an opportunity for the city government and key partners to gather their focus and priorities for the future. Given limited resources, the initial focus should be on addressing existing shortfalls in infrastructure investment and basic services, particularly in drainage, piped water supply, housing and transportation. Policies and investments should be based on improved information, including quantitative data and an understanding of community-led actions and adaptive capacities. Finally, enhanced collaboration with the administrations of neighbouring provinces, as well as with the local communities as active participants and partners, is crucial to the success of long-term action. I think that seems like good advice for any city, actually. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. There's a lot of sources for this episode, uh, and I mentioned a lot of quotes and a lot of visuals. You can find all of those in the podcast description if you want to read on a bit more. Keep an eye on my Instagram and Twitter account, as I'll be posting some visuals and articles to complement this episode. I see that many of my listeners are from the US and the UK, so I would love to have some episodes focusing on flooding in the UK and maybe hurricanes on the east coast of the Americas. Let me know if you'd like to hear about that. You can contact me on social media. Thank you very much. 